0: Alright, welcome back to the podcast. This is a very special edition in which I am presenting the whole of Into Mohawk Country, written by Harman Vanden Bogart, or Van Der Bogart, you'll see somewhere. He is the, the founder, the originator of the Bogart family in the United States, and he has tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not a million descendants in the United States, and you might very well be one and not even be aware of it. Why this document is important is because it's the first written primary source of what the inside of the five nations looked like that we have. So this dates to 1634 and into 1635. We don't have an earlier description of the interior of the Iroquois Confederation before this point. This is it. This is the origin. This is the first and earliest primary source. That's why this is so important. Other reasons why it's important. Not only do we get a glimpse of the inside of the Iroquois world from the viewpoint of one of their allies instead of one of their enemies, which is most of the documents we have, we also get a glimpse inside of the mind of a young Dutch person in New Netherland, of which we get very little of. Because the Dutch, they're a Germanic people, they're very matter-of-fact, and they're working for this company, the Dutch West India Company. Most of the records we have from this time and all the way up through the end of New Netherland are legal in, in their in their content, legal or just normal business transactions. We don't get any little sense of their spirit or soul, really. There's only a couple letters and then this journal. So that's why this is so important. Just a couple more things before we get started. There are a lot of great modern editions of this with newer translations than the one I'm going to use. My translation is in the public domain, so I don't get in trouble or get sued by somebody. But there are some very good editions. There's even one that's a graphic novel that kids might like. I've used it in, in a class before. And it is done by. I got it right here in my hands. Who is this? George O'Connor did the artwork, and of course, Vanderburghert is the author of it. And then, of course, the best translations available are done by Charles Gehring, who is the renowned expert in New Netherland and uh, just you know all around the guru on the subject. So I pale in comparison to the man. So if you want to get the best version possible, look for one of the versions done by Charles Gehring. He's done at least two editions. So, that being said, my edition, the grammar isn't that great. It's an old translation. It's a 150-year-old translation of a 400-year-old document written in Dutch. So, if you notice some weird turns of phrase or some bad grammar, don't blame me. It's not my fault. So, if you want to make a complaint, get yourself a time machine, go back 150 or so years and blame the first translator, and then if that doesn't suffice, go back 400 years and blame Harmon yourself. Also, that includes anything, any of the Native American words that I might be messing up. Again, I'm reading them off a 150-year-old document that was written down 400 years ago by a guy who didn't actually know the native languages that well yet. So there's going to be some problems with it. I've also read this document a number of different times from a number of different translators, but I'm still going to read it in such a way as that I'm acting out what's happening, so to speak. Obviously, it was written after every night as he was sitting down by the fire and probably just writing down the little bits of what happened during the day, but I wanted to make it an active style of reading, so sometimes I'm going to stammer over a word, and I just left that in there. So I I want you to to, uh, really hear a character there, and because of that, I added background noises. So sometimes you'll hear village noises, you'll hear them walking through the snow, you'll hear rivers, and you'll hear gunshots, and all sorts of stuff going on. So hopefully that won't be too much of a distraction for you. You can put on your headphones and just kind of live in this world 400 years ago. All right, I'm not going to waste your time any longer. So, for the next 40 minutes or so, or just shy of 40 minutes after I'm done blabbering on here, you will hear Uninterrupted, The Journey into Mohawk Country, by Harmon Vanden Bogert. And then after this point, there'll be a little bit of commentary from me, if you wish to stick around and listen. Narrative of the Journey into Mohawk and Oneida Country, 1634-1635. Praise the Lord above all, Fort Orange, 1634. December 11th. This journal is kept to record the principal events that happened during the journey to the Mohawk and the Oneidas. First, the reasons why we went on the journey were these, that the Mohawk and the Oneidas very often came to our fort, speaking to the commander Martin Gerritsen and me, stating there were French Indians in their land, and that they had made a truce with them, so that namely the Mohawk wished to trade for their skins, because the Mohawk Indians wanted to receive just as much for their skins as the French Indians did. So I proposed to Martin Gerritsen to go and see if this was true. So soon to run counter to their high mightiness, and besides, trade was doing very badly, therefore I went as above with Geronimus Delacroix and Willem Thomanson. May the Lord bless my voyage. We went between nine and 10 o'clock with five Mohawk Indians, mostly northwest above eight leagues, and arrived at half past 12 in the evening at a hunter's cabin where we slept for the night. Near the stream that runs into their land, and is named a yogi. The natives here gave us venison to eat. The land is mostly full of fir trees, and the flat land is abundant. The stream runs through their land, near the Mohawk village, but we could not ascend it on account of the heavy freshet. December 12th, at three hours before daylight, we proceeded again, and the natives that went with us would have left us there if I had not noticed. And when we thought of taking our meal, we perceived that their dogs had eaten our meat and our cheese... So we had only dried bread and had to travel on that. And after going for an hour, we came to the branch of the river that runs into our river just past the Mohawk villages, where the ice drifted very fast. Geronimus crossed first, with one native in a canoe made of the bark of trees. Because there was only room for two, after that, Willem and I went over. And it was so dark that we could not see each other unless we came very close together. It was not without danger. When all of us had crossed, we went another league and a half and came to a hunter's cabin, which we entered to eat some venison and hastened further. And after another half league, we saw some natives approaching. And as soon as they saw us, they ran off and threw their sacks and bags away and fled down a valley behind the underwood so that we could not see them. We looked at their goods and bags and took therefrom a small loaf of bread. It was baked with beans and we ate it. We went further and mostly along the aforesaid kill that ran very swiftly because of the freshet in the kill there are a very many good islands and on the sides upwards of 500 or 600 morgans of flat land yes i think even more and after we had been marching about 11 leagues we arrived at one o'clock in the evening half a league from the first village at a little house we found only native women inside we should have gone further but i could hardly move my feet because of the rough road so we slept there it was very cold with northerly wind. December 13th, in the morning, we went together to the village over the ice that during the night had frozen on the kill. and after going half a league, we arrived at the first village, which was built on a high hill. There stood but 36 houses and rows like streets so we could pass nicely. The houses are made and covered with the bark of trees and are mostly flat at the top. Some are one hundred ninety or 80 paces long and 22 or 23 feet high. There are some inside doors of hewn boards, furnished with iron hinges. In some houses, we saw different kinds of ironwork. Iron chains, harrow irons, iron hoops, nails, which they steal when they go forth from here. Most of the people were out hunting deer and bear. The houses were full of corn, which they call ornesti. And we saw maize. Yes, in some of the houses, more than 300 bushels. They make canoes and barrels out of the bark of trees and sow with bark as well. We had a good many pumpkins cooked and baked, and they called that an None of the chiefs were at home, but the principal chief is named Adrian who lived a quarter of a mile from here in a small house, because a good many of the natives here at the village had died of smallpox. I sent him a message to come and see us, which he did. He came and bade me welcome, and he said that he wanted very much for us to come with him. We should have done so, but when already on the way, another chief called us, and so we went to the village again. This one had a big fire lighted and a fat haunch of venison cooked, of which we ate. He gave us two bear skins to sleep upon and presented me with three beaver skins. In the evening, Willem Thomason, whose legs were swollen from the march, had a few cuts made with a knife therein, and after had it rubbed with bear's grease. We slept in this house, ate heartily of the pumpkins, beans, and venison, so that we were not hungry, but were treated as well as possible in their land. We hope that all will succeed. December 14th. Geronimus wrote a letter to our commander, Martin Gerritsen, and asked for paper, salt, and green tobacco for the natives. When we went out to shoot turkeys with the chief, we could not get it. In the evening, I bought a very fat one for two hands of wampum. The chief cooked it for us, and the grease he mixed with our beans and maize. This chief showed me his idol. It was a male cat's head, with the teeth sticking out. It was dressed in duffel cloth. Others have a snake, a turtle, a swan, a crane, a pigeon, or the like for their idols, to tell fortunes. They think they will always have good luck in doing so. From here, two natives went with their skins to Fort Orange. December 15th. I went again with the chief to hunt turkeys, but could not get any. And in the evening, the chief again showed us his idol, and we resolved to stay here another day or two, or three, until the opportunity came to proceed, because of all the footpaths had disappeared under the heavy snowfalls. December 16th, after midday, a famous hunter came here named Sycharis, who wanted very much that we should go with him to his village. He offered to carry our goods and to let us sleep and remain in his house as long as we'd like. And because he offered us so much, I gave him a knife and two owls as a present. And to the chief in which whose house we had been living, I presented a knife and a pair of scissors. And then we took our departure from this village named Onakanoka, and after going half a league over the ice, we saw a village with only six houses of the name Kanawarogi. We did not enter it because he said it was not worthwhile, and after another half league, we passed again a village where 12 houses stood. It was named Shatsasrosi. These were like the others he was saying that likewise were not worth entering. And after passing by great stretches of flat land for another league, league and a half, we came into this village at two good hours after dark. I didn't see much besides a good many graves. This village is named Kanagari. It is built on a hill without any palisades or any defense. We found only seven men at home, besides a party of old women and children. The chiefs of this village are named Tanasaten and Tanawero. They were out hunting. So we slept in the house of Sycharis as he had promised us. And we counted in his house 120 pieces of saleable beaver skins that he had captured with his own dogs. Every day we ate beaver meat here. In this castle are 16 houses, 50, 60, 70, 80 paces long. And one of 16 paces and one of 5 paces containing a bear to be fattened. It had been in there upwards of 3 years and it was so tame that it took everything that was given to it to eat. December 17th. Sunday we looked over our goods and found a paper filled with sulfur, and Geronimus took some of it and threw it onto a fire. The natives saw a blue flame and smelled the smoke, and they told us that they had the same stuff. And when Sycorus came, they asked us to let them take a look at it, and it was the same. And we asked him where they obtained it. He told us they obtained it from stranger natives, and that they believed it was a, a good protection from illnesses, but principally for their legs when they were sore from long marching and were very tired. December 18th, three women of the Oneidas came here with dried fish and fresh salmon. The later smelled very bad. They sold each salmon for one florin or two hands of wampum. They brought also a good quantity of green tobacco to sell, and had been six days on the march. They could not sell all their salmon here, but went further on to the first village. And when they returned, we were to go with them. And in the evening, Geronimus told me, that a native tried to kill him with a knife. December 19th. We received a letter from Martin Gerritsen dated December 18th, and with it we received paper, salt, tobacco for the natives, and a bottle of brandy, and secured a native that was willing to be our guide to the Oneidas. We gave him half a yard of cloth, two axes, two knives, and two owls. If it had been summer, many of the natives would have gone with us, But as it was winter, they would not leave their land, because it snowed very often here up to the height of a man. Today we had a great rainfall, and I gave the guide a pair of shoes. His name was Squahira, December 20th. We took our departure from the second village, and after marching a league, our native, Squahira, came to a stream that we had to pass. The stream ran very fast, besides big cakes of ice came drifting along, for the heavy rainfall during yesterday had set the ice drifting. We were in great danger, for if one of us had lost our footing, it could cost us our lives. But God the Lord preserved us, and we came through safely. We were wet up to above our waist, and after going another half-league, we came thus wet with our clothes, shoes, and stockings frozen to us, to a very high hill on which stood 32 houses like the other ones. Some were 100, 90, or 80 paces long. and every house we saw four, five, or six fireplaces, where cooking went on. A good many natives here were at home, so we were looked at by both the old and the young. Indeed, we could barely pass through. They pushed each other into the fire just to see us, and it was more than midnight before they took their departure. We could not absent ourselves to go to the bathroom. Even then, they crawled around without any feeling of shame. This is the third village, and his name, Shanadis. The chief's name is Tioweri. They lent me this evening a lion skin to cover myself, But in the morning, I had more than a hundred lice. We ate much venison there. Near this village, there is plenty of flat land, and the wood is full of oak and nut trees. We exchanged here one beaver skin for one owl. December 21st. We started very early in the morning, and thought of going to the fourth village, but after a half-league's marching, we came to a village with only nine houses. Of that, the name is Asquagi. The chief's name is Aquijo, that is, the wolf. And here we saw a big stream that our guide did not dare to cross, as the water was over one's head because of the heavy rainfall. So we were obliged to postpone it until the next day. The chief treated us very kindly. He did us much good and gave us plenty to eat, for everything to be found in his houses were at our service. He said often to me that I was his brother and good friend. Yes, he told me even how he had been traveling overland for 30 days and how he met there an Englishman to learn the language of the Canestoga, and to buy the skins. I asked him whether there were any French Indians there with the Oneidas. He said yes, and I felt gratified and had a good hope to reach my aim. They called me here to cure a man that was very sick. December 22nd. When the sun rose, we waded together through the stream. The water was over the knee and so cold that our shoes and stockings in a very short time were frozen and as hard as armor. The natives dared not go through but went two by two with a stick hand-in-hand. And after going half a league, we came to a village named Kawogi. There stood 14 houses and a bear to fatten. We went in and smoked a pipe of tobacco, because an old man who was our guide was very tired. Another old man approached us, who shouted, Welcome, welcome, you must stop here for the night. But we wanted to be on our march and went forward. I tried to buy the bear, but they would not let it go. Along these roads, we saw many trees, much like the Sabin, with a very thick bark. This village likewise stood on a very high hill. And after going another league, we came into the fourth village. By land whereon, we saw only a few trees. The name is Te Natogi. There are 55 houses, some 100, others more or fewer paces long. The kill we spoke about before here runs past here. And the course is mostly north by west, and south by east. On the other bank of the kill there is also houses, but we did not go in, because they were mostly filled with corn, and the houses in this village are filled with corn and beans. The natives here looked much surprised to see us, and they crowded around us so much that we could hardly pass through, for nearly all of them were at home. After a while, one of the natives came to us and invited us to go with him to his house, and we entered. This village had been surrounded by three rows of palisades, but now there were none save six or seven pieces, so thick that it was quite a wonder that these natives should be able to do that. They crowded each other so much, they would push each other into the fire just to see us. December 23rd. A man came calling and shouting through some of the houses, but we did not know what it meant. And after a while, Geronimus Delacroix came and told us what this was, that the natives are preparing an arming. I asked them what this was all about, and they said to me, "'Nothing, we shall play with one another.' "'And there were four men with clubs "'and a party with axes and sticks. "'There were twenty people armed, nine on one side, eleven on the other, and they went off against one another, "'and they fought and threw each other. "'Some of them wore armor and helmets that they made themselves, "'out of thin reeds and strings braided upon each other, "'so tightly that no arrow or axe could pass through "'and wound them so severely. "'And after they had been playing thus a good while, The parties closed in on one another and dragged each other by the hair, just as they would have done so to their enemies after defeating them and before cutting off their scalps. They wanted us to fire our pistols, but we went off and left them alone. This day we were invited to buy bear meat, and we also got half a bushel of beans and a good quantity of dried strawberries. And we bought some bread that we wanted to take on our march. Some of the loaves were baked with nuts and cherries and dry blueberries and the grains of sunflower. December 24th. It was Sunday. I saw in one of the houses a sick man. He had invited two of their doctors that could cure him. They called themselves Simichokes. And as soon as they came, they began to sing and to light a big fire. They closed the house most carefully everywhere so that the breeze could not come in. And after that, each of them wrapped a snake skin around his head. They washed their hands and faces, lifted the sick man from his place, and laid him alongside the big fire. Then they took a bucket of water, put some medicine in it, and washed in this water a stick about half a yard long, and kept sticking it in their own throats, so that the end of it was not to be seen. And then they spat on the patient's head and over his body. And after that they had made all sorts of farces, as shouting and raving, slapping of the hands. So are their manners, with many demonstrations upon one thing and another, till they perspired so freely... That their perspirations ran down all of their sides. December 25th. Being Christmas, we rose early in the morning and wanted to go to the Oneidas. But it was snowing steadily. We could not go because nobody wanted to go with us to carry our goods. I asked them how many chiefs there were in all, and they told me 30. December 26th. In the morning, I was offered two pieces of bear's bacon to take with us on the march. And we took our departure, escorted by many of them that walked before and after us. They kept shouting, Alessa Rondete, that is, to fire our pistols. But we did not want to do so. And at last, they went back. This day, we passed over many a stretch of flat land and crossed a hill where the water was knee-deep. And I think we kept this day mostly the direction of west and northwest. The woods that we traversed consisted of in the beginning mostly of oaks, but after three or four hours of marching, it was mostly birch trees. It snowed the whole day, so it was very heavy marching over the hills, and after seven leagues, by guess, we arrived at a little house made of bark in the forest, where we lighted a fire and stopped for the night to sleep. It went on snowing with a sharp northerly wind. It was very cold. December 27th, early in the morning again, on our difficult march... While the snow was two and a half feet in some places, we went over the hills and through the underwood. We saw traces of two bears and elks, but no natives. There are beech trees, and after marching another seven or eight leagues at sunset, we found a little cabin in the forest, with hardly any bark, but covered with the branches of trees. We made a big fire and cooked our dinner. It was so very cold during the night that I could not sleep more than two hours in all. December 28th we went as before and after marching one or two leagues we arrived at a kill that the natives told me ran into the land of the mohawk and after another mile we met another kill that runs into the south river as the natives told me and here are a good many otter and beaver are caught this day we went over many hills the wood was full of great trees many birches and after seven or eight leagues of marching We did the same as mentioned above, it was very cold, December 29th. We went again, proceeding on our voyage, and after marching a while, we came to a very high hill. And as we had nearly mounted it, I fell down so hard that I thought I had broken my ribs. But it was only the handle of my cutlass that was broken. We went through a good deal of flat land, and many oaks, and after another seven leagues, we found another hut, where we rested ourselves. We made a fire and ate all the food we had, because the natives told us that We were still about four leagues distance from the next village. The sun was near setting as still another of the natives went on to the village to tell them we were coming. We would have gone with him, but because we felt so hungry, the natives would not take us along with them. The course was northwest, December 30th. Without anything to eat, we went to the Oneida village. And after marching a while, the native showed me the branch of the river that passes by Fort Orange, and past the land of the Mohawks. A woman came to meet us, bringing us baked pumpkins to eat. The road was mostly full of birches and a beautiful land for sowing. Before we reached the village, we saw three graves, just like our graves, in length and height. Usually, their graves are round. These graves were surrounded by palisades that they had split from trees, and they were closed up so nicely that it was a wonder to see. They were painted with red and white and black paint. But the chief's grave had an entrance, and on the top of that was a big wooden bird, and all around it were painted dogs, and deer, and snakes, and other beasts. After four or five leagues marching, the natives still prayed us to fire our guns, and so we did. But loaded them again directly, and went on to the next village. And we saw in the northwest of us a large river and on the other side thereof, tremendously high land, that seemed to lie in the clouds. Upon inquiring closely into this, the natives told us that this is the river the Frenchmen came to trade. And then we marched confidently to the village, where the natives divided into two rows, and so let us pass through them by the gate. The one we went through was three and a half feet wide, and at the top were standing three big wooden images, carved like men, And with them, I saw three scalps fluttering in the wind that they had taken from their foes as a token of the truth of their victory. This castle has two gates, one on the east side and one on the west. On the east side, a scalp was also hanging, but the gate was one and one half feet smaller than the other one. When we had arrived at the chief's house, I saw there a good many people that I knew. And we were requested to sit down in the chief's place where he was accustomed to sit because at this time he was not at home. And we felt cold and were wet and tired. They at once gave us food to eat and made a good fire. The village likewise is situated on a very high hill and surrounded with two rows of palisades. It was 767 paces in circumference. There are 66 houses, but much better, higher, and more finished than all the others we saw. A good many houses had wooden fronts that are painted with all sorts of beasts. There they slept mostly on elevated boards... More than any of the other natives, in the afternoon, one of the council came to me, asking the reason of our coming into his land, and what we brought for him as a present. I told him we did not bring any present, but we had only paid him a visit. He told us that we were not worth anything, because we did not bring him a present. Then he told us how the Frenchmen had come here to trade with six men, and had given them good gifts, because they had been trading on this river with six men in the month of August of this year. We saw very good axes to cut underwood, and French shirts, and coats, and razors. And this member of the council said we were scoundrels and not worth anything because we paid not enough for our beaver skins. They told us that the Frenchmen gave six hands of wampum for one beaver, and all sorts of things more. The natives were pressing closely upon us so that there was hardly room for us to sit. If they had desired to molest us, we could hardly have been able to defend ourselves. But there was no danger. In this river... Here spoken of, often six, seven, or eight hundred salmon are caught in a single day. I saw houses where 60, 70, and more dried salmon were hanging. December 31st, on Sunday, the chief of this village came back. His name is Arrhenius, and he came with one more man. They told us that they had returned from the French natives, and that some of the natives shouted, Yawa Arrhenius, which meant that they thanked him for having coming back. And I told them that in the night we should fire three shots, and he said that that was all right. We questioned them concerning the situation of the places in their village and their names and how far they are from one another. They showed us with stones and maize grains, and Geronimus then made a chart of it. And we counted all the leagues how far each place was from the next. The natives told us that on a high land, which we had seen by the lake, there lived men with horns on their heads. And they told us that a good many beavers were caught there too but they dared not go so far because of the French natives. Therefore, they thought best to make peace. We fired three shots in the night in honor of the year of our Lord and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. January 1st, 1635. Another native scolded at us. We were scoundrels, as told before, and he looked very angry. Willem Thomason got so excited that tears were running along his cheeks, and the natives, seeing that we were not all contented, asked us what the matter was and why we looked so disgusted at him. There were in all 46 persons seated near us. If they had intended to do mischief, they easily could have caught us with their hands and killed us without much trouble. When I had listened long enough to the natives' chatter, I told him that he was a scoundrel himself, and he began to laugh. Said he was not angry at us, and said, You must not grow so furious, for we are very glad that you came here. And after that, Geronimus gave the chief two knives, two pairs of scissors, and a few owls and needles that we had with us. And in the evening, the natives suspended a band of wampum and some other stringed wampum that the chief had brought with him from the French natives as a sign of peace and that the French natives were to come in confidence to them. And he sang, Hoshine Johoho Shini Ai Atawachi Ataswahi, after which all the natives shouted three times, Netho, Netho, Netho. And after that, another band of wampum was suspended. And he sang, Katan, 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 Katan. And all the natives shouted as hard as they could. Hi, hi, hi. After long deliberation, they made peace for four years. And soon after, everyone returned to his home. January 2nd. The natives came to us and told us that we had better stop another four or five days. They would provide for all of our needs and we would be treated nicely. But I told them we could not wait so long. They replied, "Send a message to the Onondagas. That is the village next to theirs. But I told them that they nearly starved us. Then they said that in the future they would look better after us, and twice during the day we were invited to be their guests and treated as salmon and bear's bacon. January 3rd, some old men came to us and told us they wanted to be our friends, and they said we need not be afraid. And I replied that we were not afraid, and in the afternoon the council sat here in all 24 men, and after consulting for a long while, an old man approached me and laid his hands upon my heart to feel it beat. And then he shouted, we were really not afraid at all. After that, six more members of the council came, and after that they presented me with a coat made of beaver skin, and told me they had given it to me because I came here and ought to be very tired. And he pointed to his and my legs, and besides, it is because you have been marching through the snow, and when I took the coat, they shouted three times, netho, 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 which means this is very well. And directly after that, they laid five pieces of beaver skins at my feet and at the same time requesting me that in the future they should receive four hands of wampum and four hand breaths of cloth for every big beaver skin. Because we have gone so far with our skins, and often when we have come to your place, we do not find any cloth or wampum or axes or kettles or not enough for all of us. And then we have much trouble for nothing and have to go back over a great distance carrying our goods back again. After we sat for a considerable time, an old man came to us and translated it to us in the other language and told us that we did not answer yet whether they would have four hands of wampum or not for their skins. I told him that we had not the power to promise that, but that we should report about it to the chief at the Manhattans, who was our commander, and that I would give them a definitive answer in the spring and to come myself to their land. Then they said to me, You must not lie, and surely come to us in the spring, and report to us what is all about. And if you will give us four hands of wampum, we will not sell our skins to anyone but you." And after that, he gave me five beaver skins, and shouted as loud as they could, Netho! 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 And then, that everything should be firmly binding, they sang a song that means that I could go to all these places, they said, the names of all of the villages, freely and everywhere. I should be provided with a house and a fire and wood and everything I needed. And if I wanted to go to the Frenchmen, they would guide me there and back. And after that, they shouted again, netho, netho, netho. And then they made me a present of another beaver skin. And we ate today bear meat that we were invited to. In this house belonging to the chief, there are three or four meals a day. And they did not cook in this house as everything was brought in from other houses in large kettles. For it was the council that took their meals here every day. And whoever then happens to be in the house receives a bowl full of food. For it is the rule here that everyone that comes here has a bowl filled. And if they are short on bowls, they bring them and their spoons with them. They thus go and seat themselves side by side. The bowls are then fetched and brought back filled for the guests that is invited. And they do not rise before the guest has eaten. Sometimes they sing and sometimes they do not, thanking the host before they returned home. January 4th, two natives came, inviting us to come and see how they used to drive out the devil. I told them that I had seen it before, but they did not move off and I had to go. And because I did not choose to go alone, I took Geronimus along. I saw a dozen men together who were going to drive him off. After we arrived, the floor of the house was thickly covered with the bark of trees for the hunters of the devil to walk upon. They were mostly old men, and they had their faces all painted with red paint, which they always do when they are going to do anything unusual. Three men among them had a wreath on their heads, on which stuck five white crosses. These wreaths are made out of deer hair that they had braided with the roots of a sort of green herb. In the middle of the house they put a man who was very sick and who was treated without success during a considerable time. Close by sat an old woman with a turtle shell in her hand. In the turtle shell were a good many beads. She kept clinking all the while, and all of them sang to the measure. Then they would proceed to catch the devil and trample him to death. They trampled the bark to atoms, so that none of it remained whole. And wherever they saw a little bit of cloud of dust upon the maze, they beat it, to great amazement, and they blew the dust at one another, and they were so afraid that they ran as if they really saw the devil. And after a long stamping and running, one of them went to the sick man and took away an otter that he had in his hand. And then he sucked the sick man for a while on his neck and on his back, and after that he spat in the otter's mouth and threw it down. At the same time, he ran off like a madman through fear. Other men then went to the otter and then there took a place such foolery that it was quite a wonder to see. Yes, they commenced to throw fire and eat fire, and kept scattering hot ashes and hot coals in such a way that I ran out of the house. Today, another beaver skin was presented to me. January 5th. I bought four dried salmon and two pieces of bear bacon that was about nine inches thick, and we saw even thicker, too. They gave us beans to cook with our bear bacon and to eat today. And further, nothing particular happened. January 6th. Nothing particular than that I was shown a parcel of flint stones wherein they make fire when they are in the forest. Those stones would do very well for our firelock guns. January 7th. We received a letter from Martin Gerritsen dated from the last of December. It was brought to us by the Oneida that arrived from our fort. He told us that our people grew very uneasy about us not coming home and that they thought we had been killed. We ate fresh salmon, only two days caught. And we were robbed today of six and a half hands of wampum that we never saw again. January 8th. Arrhenius came to me and said that he wanted to go with me to the fort and take all his skins to trade. Geronimus tried to sell his coat here, but he could not get rid of it. January 9th. During the evening, the Onondagas came. There were six old men and four women. They were very tired from the march and brought with them some bear skins. I came to meet with them and thanked them that they should come here to visit us. And they welcomed me, and because it was very late, I went home. January 10th. Geronimus burned the greater part of his pantaloons that dropped into the fire during the night. And the chief's mother gave him cloth to repair it, and Willem Thomason repaired it. January 11th. At 10 o'clock in the morning, the natives came to me and invited me to go to the house where the Onondaga sat in council. They will give you presents, and I went there with Geronimus. We took our pistols with us and sat alongside them near an old man of the name of Kenestogeria, about 55 years of age. And he said, Friends, I have come here to see you and talk to you. Wherefore, we thanked him. And then after that, we sat in council for a long time. An interpreter came to me and gave me five pieces of beaver skin because we had come into their council. I took the beaver skins and thanked him. And they shouted three times, Netho. And after that, another five bearskins they had laid upon my feet. And they gave them to me because I had come to their council house. He said we should have been given a good many skins as presents if we came into his land. And that he earnestly requested me to come visit their land in the summer. And that after that he gave me another four beaver skins. And asked at the same time to be better paid for their skins. They would bring us a great quantity if we did. And if I came back in the summer to their land, we should have three or four natives along with us to look all around and the lake, and show us where the Frenchmen come to trade with their shallops. And when we gathered our 14 beavers, they again shouted as hard as they could, Zenea netho! And we fired away our pistols and gave the chief two pairs of knives, some owls and needles, and then we were informed we might take our departure. We had at this time five pieces of salmon and two pieces of bear bacon that we were to take on the march. And here they have a good many loaves and even flour to take with us. January 12th. We took our departure and when we thought everything was ready the natives did not want to carry our goods. 28 beaver skins, five salmon, and some loaves of bread because they had already quite enough to carry. But after a good deal of grumbling and some nice words, they at last consented to carrying our goods. Many natives walked along us and they shouted, Ale that is, to fire our pistols. And when we came near the chief's grave, we fired three shots and they went back. It was about nine o'clock when we left this place and walked only about five leagues through two and a half feet of snow. It was a very difficult road, so that some of the natives had to stop in the forest and sleep in the snow. We went on, however, and reached a little cabin where we slept. January 13th, early in the morning. We were on our journey again, and after going seven or eight leagues, we arrived at another hut, where we rested a while, cooked our dinner, and slept. Arrhenius pointed out to me a place on a high mountain and said that after ten days marching... We could reach a big river there, where plenty of people are living, and where plenty of cows and horses are. But we had to cross the river for a whole day, and then proceed for six days more in order to reach it. This was the place which we passed on the 29th of December. He did us a great deal of good. January 14th. On Sunday, we made ready to proceed, but the chief wished to go bear hunting, and wanted to stop here. But because it was finer weather, I went alone with two or three natives. Here the Mohawk Indians joined us, and they wanted to go and trade elk skins and bear fat. January 15th. In the morning, two hours before daylight, after taking breakfast with the natives, I proceeded on the voyage, and when it was nearly dark again, the natives had made a fire in the wood. As they did not want to go farther, and I came about three hours after dark to a hut where I had slept on the 26th of December. It was very cold. I could not make a fire and was obliged to walk the whole night to keep warm. January 16th. In the morning, three hours before dawn, as the moon rose, I searched for the path, which I found at last, and because I marched so quickly, I arrived about nine o'clock on a very extensive flat land. And after having passed over a high hill, I came to a very even footpath that had been made through the snow by the natives who had passed this way with much venison because they had come here to the home of their village after hunting. And after about 10 o'clock, I saw the village and arrived there about 12 o'clock. Upward of 100 people came out to welcome me and showed me a house where I could go. They gave me a white hare to eat. They cooked it with walnuts and put it on a piece of wheaten bread that a native had got from Fort Orange on the 15th of this month and had brought here with him. In the evening, more than 40 fathoms of wampum were divided among them, as the last will of the natives that had died of smallpox. It was divided in the presence of the chief and the nearest friends, as is their custom. And in the evening, the natives gave me two bearskins to cover me, and they brought rushes to lay under my head. And they told us that our kinsmen wanted very much that we would come back. January 17th, Geronimus and Thomason, with some natives, joined us at this village. And they were still all right. And in the evening, I saw another hundred fathoms of wampum divided between and among the chiefs and the friends of the nearest of blood. January 18th. We went again to this village. I should say from this village on our route in order to hasten home. In some of the houses, we saw more than 40 or 50 deer cut in quarters and dried. They gave us very little of it to eat. After marching half a league, we passed through the village of Korogi, and after another half league, we came to the village of Aswagi. The chief, Akawaho, received us well, and he waited here for another chief, Arrhenius, whom we had left in the village of T-Natogi, January 19th. We went as fast as we could in the morning, proceeding on the march, and after going half a league, we arrived at the third village named Shenadisi. And I looked around in some of the houses as to whether there were any skins. I met nine onondagas there with skins. And I was told to go to the second village, Tonowero, was at home, who welcomed us at once. And he gave us a very fat piece of venison, and we cooked it. And when we were sitting at dinner, we received a letter from Martin Gerritsen, brought to us by a native that had came in search of us. And it was dated January 18th. We resolved to proceed at once to the first village and to depart on the morrow for Fort Orange. And a good three hours before sunset, we arrived at the first village. We had bread baked for us again, and we packed three beavers that we had received from the chief when we had first come here. We slept here for the night, and we ate here. January 20th, in the morning before daylight, Geronimus sold his coat for four beaver skins that he sold to an old man. We set forth an hour before daylight, and after marching, by best guess, two leagues, The natives pointed to a high mountain, where their village stood for nine years before. They had been driven out by the Mohegans, and after that time, they did not want to live there. After marching seven or eight leagues, we found that the hunter's cabin had been burned, so we were obliged to sleep under the blue sky. January 21st. We proceeded early in the morning, and after a long march, we took a wrong path. That was the most walked upon, but the natives knew the paths better than we did, and they returned with us. And after 11 leagues marching, we arrived. The Lord be praised and thanked at Fort Orange, January 21st, in the year of our Lord, 1635. Thank you for listening to almost 40 minutes of Into Mohawk Country. And now I got a couple things to confess to you people. I lied about a couple of the details in the book as I read it. So there's a few words that I switched around either to make it a little more modern to our sensibilities or to make it them make it more understandable to you or more accurate. So the first and the biggest thing that I did is that anytime you heard the word native in the last 40 minutes or so, the actual written word translates as savage. Now, why did I make this change? Well, I think you could think of a couple reasons, and I'm sure they're all right. So first of all, I wanted Harmon at least for this amount of time before I ruined it on you to be a protagonist for you I wanted you to be able to identify with the character and get into his shoes and if he's going around calling people savages you might not be so easy to do that so I did that for that first reason the second reason I did it is I don't believe that the word savage had the same connotation then as it does now if I were to tell you that you were going to walk into an unknown territory that was just full of savages literally everyone there is a savage would you do that would you go there? Just you and two of your buddies? Yes, you would have a musket and a pistol. But other than that, you're just on your own. Would you do that? Would you Would you have guides who were savages? Would you eat with savages? Would you sleep around savages? The modern notion of what a savage is. This is why I think that whatever the word savage meant in the 17th century, it doesn't quite mean the same thing now. Now, I'm going to postulate that what a savage meant in the 16th century was a native person who was not a Christian. Now, today, if we were going to define the same person, a native person who's not a Christian, we might just use the term native. And so that's why I use the term, because I actually think it's more closely related to what Harmon actually meant. So I switched savage for native. So sue me. There you go. The second thing I changed is anytime you see the word mohawk, well, they knew who the Mohawks were. That was fine. But as far as the Dutch knew and the English knew at this time, the other nations in the Iroquois Confederacy, they just called them all Senecas or some form of the word Seneca. They didn't really differentiate between those tribes yet. How could they? The Mohawk controlled the eastern door and all the contact between them. So in the original manuscript, it says, oh, we're going to go see a Seneca village. We're going to go see the Senecas. In reality, they're probably ending up in an Oneida village. And, of course, they walk all the way through Mohawk Territory, end up in an Oneida village, and then they find their way back. So that's the second thing I did. Are you ready for another kind of lie? It's kind of a lie. The authorship of the text. So every edition you see now, and this recording right here, it's going to say this was written by Harman van den Bogart. Or Harmon van der Bogart. Any, any form of that. In reality, we weren't sure who wrote this. There was no name on it. There is no name on the original manuscript. And in fact, the first translation guesses other people as the author. One one uh, famous example is not Van Curler, or Van Curler, depending on where you're from, how you say that name, the famous founder of Schenectady, New York. But as a uh, scholar many years ago now, Van Leer, very famous, uh, tra- he's the guy who, who does a lot of these translations. He was the Charles Garing of his time, really. Van Leer points out, well, Arndt van Keurler wasn't in New Netherland at the time. He wasn't there yet. It can't possibly be him. And so scholars have kind of weeded, every, weeded through all the evidence to try to find out who is the actual author of this document. Because there's no name on it, like I said. Well, we know they worked at Fort Orange. Fort Orange is a very small fort. There's only a certain amount of people working there. As we've covered in past episodes, you can have a dozen people there, and it's fully staffed because you're not doing very many things there. You're, you're keeping stores, you're doing deals with the Native Americans for beaver pelts, and you're shipping them downstream. So through process of elimination, many scholars have concluded that it is, it's Harman. It's going to be Harman. Now, there are some internal clues that people have pointed out. One clue is the many times that the Native Americans ask Harmon specifically, to witness some sort of healing ceremony where somebody has an illness and they're going to drive out the evil spirits that caused that illness. Now, why would Harmon be beckoned to watch this thing unless they knew he was some sort of healer? Now, he was. He was what's called a barber surgeon. So that's going to be roughly analogous to what we saw in the text when we have these Native American healers. And they would have recognized him as a healer from another culture. That's a little piece of internal evidence. Another piece of evidence, which is really convincing, I'm going to bring up later on, because Harmon, as much as I try to make him our protagonist, he might be a villain by the end of this story. By the end of this, you might hate him. You, you'll you probably hate him by the end of this. So if you really like the story and you want to just keep the little fairy tale uh, vision of the man in your head, you can just end this right now. So we'll tackle that at a later time. But first, let's go to the beginning of the text. What is the problem? What is the issue that causes this great journey that takes... Over a month, at least? I don't know, you can go through the dates. Well, the furs have stopped coming in. Now, if you remember anything about the colony so far, right now, furs are the lifeblood of the colony. Later on, there'll be other revenue streams. But at this point, if the furs don't come in, there's no point in the colony existing. So the furs have stopped. And so Harmon and his two buddies, they're going to be tasked with going into Mohawk country. Hence, hence the title of the work. They're going to go into Mohawk country, see what the problem is, and try to fix the problem. Get the get the stream of furs going their way. Now, the rumor right off the bat is that the French Indians are in Iroquois territory, making treaties and agreements with the Mohawk and the other Iroquois people, and they are funneling those furs up into New France, to the French. Now, that term French Indians, I brought it up several times, and I didn't replace it with anything because... You're going to need to know what that term means in the future at some point, if, especially if you follow this podcast. So when you hear French Indians, that's not somebody who's half French, half Native American or somebody who's French. And you know, there's no it's nothing like that. All a French Indian is in a colonial context when you hear it is a Native American allied with the French. That's all it is. They're not French. They're Native American, but their allegiance is toward France and not the Dutch or the English or the Spanish. That's it. So when you're a French Indian, they're Native Americans, but they're friends with the French. So I got that terminology out of the way. So now they're going to go into Mohawk country. Now, why is this so significant? Well, we just go, well, that's just central and western New York. Big deal. Big whoop. What are they going to see? That's, that's not a great adventure. Well, at the time, most of what is now New York State was blank on the maps. We have a lot of detail of what the Hudson River looked like on European maps. But as far as what the middle of the Iroquois Confederacy looked like, blank. There's nothing there. There was a very early trader many years before Harman who went through that territory and gave us some record of it, but we have no account. And that's why this is our first primary source. So there's the foggiest notion of the eastern limit of this stuff. But once Harman goes two or three days in, we're in uncharted territories, literally uncharted. There are no charts of this territory. So could you imagine that? I try to tell this to my students and they can't get the foggiest notion of it. Before GPS before everything else. Imagine you're walking square off all the known maps of the world. The GPS is off. It doesn't exist yet. The map is off because you just literally stepped off the edge of it. Imagine being completely in the unknown, as far as you know, just out there. That's a feeling that we really can't have in today's world. We kind of always know where we are. And even if we get lost for a little bit, you have a general idea of where you are. You know what county you're in, what state you're in. Nope, they're going to be off the grid i can't even imagine that feeling maybe you can the best analogy we might have for that feeling and i'm thinking this this might work you ever did you ever wake up and you don't know where you are for like a second and a half that is probably the feeling you would live in when you walked off the known maps of the world that's probably as close as we could ever get to feeling that and we know Harmon probably didn't have a map because he has guides which you would probably need because you're going into the uh, territory of another sovereign nation. But also, him and his partners take, take a lot of time and make their own maps. Remember, at one point in the text, they're asking, well, where's this village in relation to this village? And they started drawing it out. So Harmon's literally making the map. He's making the Google Earth as he's discovering it. So that's a little bit of internal evidence that he didn't have any map going into this. And now Harmon and his buddies go off into the wilderness with Mohawk guides. And if you notice, they're on trails. They're walking through ice and snow and whatnot, but they're on trails. The Native Americans had already established trails long, long ago. A lot of those trails today are the major interstates and uh, highways in New York State. Many people have tried to outline where exactly Harmon went on today's map of New York State. And, you know, he's going east to west. Just think about the New York State Thruway after Albany, going towards Buffalo, Somewhere along that way, you know, they're roughly going to run parallel to one another. Now, if you notice, when they get to the first couple villages, the people there are obviously the curious about these white people showing up. They're going to look very strange, different, have weird customs, smell different, and everything else. But they're not quite as surprised as people later on in our story. And that's because they're right on the edge. They're going to be the final link in that fur trade to the dutch they've they've seen dutch people before they've seen traders they know generally what they look like what's going on they know about firearms if you notice in the first couple villages nobody's like hey fire your guns but when we get deep into iroquois territory there's a more internal evidence that there really haven't been a lot of white people in this area Because when they show up in in some of these villages, people are crowding around them and pushing each other into fireplaces just to get through to see these people. Because they looked like freaks compared to everything they'd seen before. Now in today's world, we're kind of desensitized to variety, basically. Just the idea of variety. We have everything. We can see what people look like at any place on the planet. We can hear their languages. We can hear their music. And so sounds and shapes and colors and smells, everything, we know everything. We have access to everything. Nothing really surprises us. But imagine being a Native American person in the Northeast United States, and your definition of a human being comes from every human being you've ever seen, and that's only ever been other Native people from the Northeast United States. And then all of a sudden, somebody shows up from Europe, 100% European, and everything on them. Is European. You've never seen stuff like that before, and it doesn't even have to be this combination. Have a, have a aborigine from Australia show up. Have even somebody from Mesoamerica show up. Your mind would be blown. Imagine somebody walking into a room, and now you literally have to rewrite your definition of what a human beings could look like. Imagine that today, right now, guy walks in the room, purple skin, purple skin and hair made out of snakes. Like, your mind is blown. And so these these white people from the Netherlands show up, and they're just the most bizarre thing these people have ever seen. And that's how you know we're getting into the part of the Iroquois Confederacy that hasn't seen French traders yet, hasn't seen the Dutch before, hasn't seen the English, because white people might as well be aliens. Furthermore, they have a fascination with guns because they have nothing like that. And so they they want they want these guys to shoot off their guns because you get smoke and you get sound and you get li- lightning shooting out of the end or fire shooting out of the end. It's cool. Shooting guns can be fun. <laughs> People like to do it. It's a popular hobby. And if you've never seen it before, it, it definitely will get your attention. Now, as interesting as all these ideas are, this is one of the weaknesses in the document because Harmon is the outsider. If we're going to use this to get any sort of information about the Iroquois at this time, it's blatantly clear from the document that we're getting it through the point of view of a guy who's not one of them not one of them and not very well acquainted yet anyway and so he gets confused sometimes he doesn't exactly know what's going on sometimes Uh, at one point somebody shows him an idol and he's kind of like i don't i don't know what you want me to do with this i don't understand what's going on here Uh, at other times he sees healing ceremonies and you could tell at certain points he's confused at what what the purpose was You know, whether or not he believes it or not, he doesn't always understand what they're trying to communicate with him. So if we're going to use this document to glean something out of what it was like in an Iroquois village in the 1630s, you always have to put it through that lens and have it in the back of your head that, well, maybe this guy didn't exactly know what the hell was going on. He probably didn't. Who knows? He might be wrong about some things. Least of which is that he called the Oneidas the Senecas. We now know that's wrong. So you sitting at home, having listened to a couple of episodes of this, might have actually had more knowledge of the people we're talking about than Harman himself, who lived there and lived among them for a while. This also proves that that chain that, that um, Iroquois today talk about, they, they talk about making a bond and a chain with the Dutch, and that carried over to the English. As a lot of scholars have pointed out, that chain wasn't that strong. These people do not know each other. It's blatantly clear. And Once you get past the first villages, they don't understand each other's manners really at all. So as we mentioned before in a previous episode, the Iroquois concluded very fast that we're going to make a deal with the Dutch here because we need supplies and they seem, they're okay. But the Dutch are so unmannered. They don't understand clan systems. They don't understand the gift giving traditions. They don't understand brotherhood, family relations, nothing. So as much as they are a chain and the link of the five nations, they're not a full member. And this document makes it blatantly clear. So one thing that um, we see a lot is in Native American traditions, when you're trading with one another, it's not just a transaction of goods. It's also uh, confirming or reconfirming a relationship, a peaceful relationship, a, a relationship of mutual assistance, if need be. Now, we see once we get past the first couple villages, Harmon shows up and he doesn't have gifts to give out. The easternmost Mohawk, they understood. They they uh, There's documents calling the Dutch children, basically, and their manners and understanding of how to be an adult in the Iroquois world. But once you get past that, the people are upset. They're like, what do you mean you don't have gifts for us? You're an adult. You, this is what you do. If you're going to go to somebody else's village, somebody else's nation, you got to bring them something. You got to bring a door gift here. Come on, what's going on here? And so we see this conflict here where they enter villages and the, the chief is like, hey, what do you got for me? And they're like, oh, we don't have anything. And then the chief's like, well, get out of here. You're worthless to me. What, what, are you, what are you doing? Okay, again, so the manners are not understood. That link in that chain is not that strong, at least not yet. But eventually in going west, they come upon a village where they know exactly what's going on. Why is the trade being redirected and where is it going? So what they learn, what Harmon and his buddies learn, is that the French Indians have come down basically through the Adirondacks or through what's now Toronto, where the Huron lived, and they've made a deal with the five nations and the French are offering more compensation for the Iroquois beaver pelts. At this point, Harmon starts a negotiation. They go back and forth. Well, okay, we can, you know, what, do you, what is it going to take to get the trade to go this way towards us? And so they go, oh, well, we want a certain amount of this. We want a certain amount of that. And they start to come to a deal. And the Native Americans realize, well, we didn't really have a firm handshake on this deal, so to speak. And then Harmon actually has to admit to him at a certain point, well, I don't actually have the authority to authorize this deal. This seems to be a major flaw in the entire thing is that they they sent these guys out on this mission and they didn't actually give them the authority to to come up with amounts and deals and whatnot. But they come to some sort of temporary understanding that would be reaffirmed by the director general because they mentioned the island of Manhattan. So it's it's got to go beyond Fort Orange and it has to go to the director general of the colony. And so they're satisfied with that and they start heading back home. The mission is accomplished. Now with all this back and forth, you might lose track of what we're doing here. The colony has just been saved. It, it's, it sounds so mild, okay? There, we didn't need to shoot anybody. We didn't need to go to war. There was no scheming, no spying. But a deal was made in trust with one another, and now the colony is saved. So our history can keep going forward now. The colony of New Netherlands survives, and it helps shape everything that is around where I live today and the history leading up to this point in time. So that was just a very short commentary. I hope I didn't bore you with it. Just kind of outlining any little rough edges around the um, the actual document itself that might have been confusing, and to reveal all the things I lied to you about. <laughs> so um, th- this next part here, you might not like. I'm going to ruin this guy for you. Harmon. Harmon Vanderbogert. I'm going to ruin him for you. So if you're a descendant of his... Or if you really like the book and you just want to keep this image of him in your head, just turn this podcast off now. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and then just turn it off. Because now I'm going to ruin everything. Because that's what I'm all about. So, a little background information on Harmon. So, Harmon is a barber surgeon. Now, at that time, that meant a couple years of university. So, this this person was college-educated and had... Somewhere between what we would call like an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree in terms of time in the university. So somewhere between two and four years will get you there and you become a barber surgeon. Now today we differentiate our jobs. We have surgeons. We have barbers. We have doctors. We have hairstylists. We got people who can cut your nails and style them. The barber surgeon was an all-encompassing healthcare guy. Alright? Because this is a more primitive time. Jobs aren't so broken up at the time. The barber-surgeon get everything done. It's similar to a modern-day vet, where you can go to a vet and have almost anything done to an animal or for an animal. It's like that. It's a one-stop shop place. The barber-surgeon. And we know he had completed this time at university and became a barber-surgeon before the age of 18. Because he shows up in 1630 in New Netherland. He's 18 years old and he's already a hired barber-surgeon for the company. He's going to work on the island of Manhattan, New Amsterdam. He's also going to work at Fort Orange. That's where we see him here. When the journey begins, he's probably about 22 years old. And this would explain a couple things about him. So he has that adventurous spirit. He's young and healthy and strong, and he's a barber surgeon himself. He's the perfect candidate to go out and explore. um, He's also, we we know he's literate, right? Because he's a barber surgeon. He's educated. So that lends credibility to the theory that this is the guy who wrote the book because a lot of people at this time were not literate. So he was a young man, and you can kind of sense it in the reading, even though he's trying to make some official document for the company. One thing that I picked on, up on after reading it two or three different times is that he can be led onto little detours by groups of Native women. If you notice, when Native women show up, they find a reason to delay, or they go somewhere they weren't supposed to go, and then they find their way back. So there's nothing explicit in there or any sense that he was flirting or anything like that. But he's a young 22-year-old man in a colony, which we haven't talked about this, by the way, in a colony that has basically no women at the time. Very few women. And if there are women there, they're already married and part of a family. So here's a young 22-year-old man who really hasn't seen a lot of women in a while. And all of a sudden, there's these native villages full of women. So... You can see it in the text. If you go through it yourself and read it or listen to it again, you'll go, oh, yeah, he does seem to kind of wander off at certain times. We know around this time, too, as he was being paid by the company, he was reinvesting that money into privateering. Now, you probably know what privateering is. It's basically pirating that's being sanctioned by one country or another. And at this point, the Dutch would be privateering, so pillaging and taking over ships in the Caribbean from mostly the Spanish but also the Portuguese. And privateering, as violent and crazy as it seems to us today, that would be like investing in a startup. That would be a similar idea of risk, where it's high risk, high reward, right? So you're going to invest in this outfit of three or four ships, and they're going to go down and pillage in the Caribbean and hopefully sink more ships than they sink and get a whole bunch of gold and silver to their name. So Harmon was smart. He was a risk taker, as we see with his investing and his journey. And he reinvested everything he made, and he's going to start a family. And we know that after he writes this down, all right, so just imagine a couple years go by, he does meet a woman, and they start a family. He has four kids. The descendants of those children are, I don't know, many tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, like I said before. I don't know the exact number, but it's a lot of people. But it's at this point where I ruin your image of the man, of uh, little old Harmon here. All right, so years have gone by. We're in the 1640s now. And now we're going to get into some legal records, some letters written back and forth across the ocean. We know that he settled down, had his family, whatnot. Now there's an incident. Harmon is caught having a homosexual relationship with an African-American. Now some journalists who have written little blurbs about him, they'll just end there. And they'll, they'll, d- they'll, they'll display him, not display, they'll depict him as some kind of pioneer of interracial relationships, and of the LGBT community. This, and again, now we have this starry image of him again as some sort of first in the colony. Well, let's keep digging and look at more of the details because it doesn't get better from this point. It turns out that the African-American male was named Tobias, and Tobias was a slave. Now, some sources mention that. Now, there are other sources that add more detail, and we realize that Tobias was his slave. Well, now things are starting to go downhill. This doesn't look good. Now things are getting awkward. So, he ends up having a sexual relationship with his own slave. This is not good. This just isn't. So, this is terrible. We don't like this. Can I make this worse for you? Yes, I can make this worse for you. Tobias is not a man. He is described as a boy. We don't know his exact age, but he's not an adult man. So now this gets really weird. Now we now it's not an image of an early LGBTQ hero coming onto the scene. You throw more details in and you realize you have a slave owner taking an advantage of a very young, by today's terms, underage slave. Now he's a terrible person, right? Now he's just the devil. That's why I say it to this point because the document has merit and has value and it's an adventure and then many years later this stuff happens. Just awful, right? It's just you don't you don't even want it. Well, the story there is a couple more interesting turns coming up here, but it's it's all downhill from here. So, he's arrested and the sentence for doing such a thing, not having a slave because they were fine with that, which we'll get to, but for doing a homosexual act like that, the the sentence is usually death. Although the Dutch found ways around that. But if he were in, let's say, the colony of Massachusetts at this time, certainly the sentence would be death. So Harmon and Tobias are both arrested. What happens at this point is Harmon manages to get out. Not only does he get out, but he breaks out Tobias and the two of them run off. And where are they going to go? Where is Harmon going to go? Where could he possibly go to evade Dutch authorities? He's going to go into Mohawk country. So here's another little piece of evidence that he was the author of this earlier document. Again, that doesn't have a name on it. He flees into Mohawk country. He goes there. He goes back because he knows them now. He has relations with them. And they go and they seek refuge in a village. And the records aren't clear, but it seems as if Harmon didn't tell the natives what was going on. He was simply there. Tobias is going to be caught at a certain point. It's not clear when or where. And I believe as a punishment, he gets like a slap on the wrist on account of his position as a slave and the fact that he was a, a child but Harmon, he's going to seek refuge uh, somebody gives him a lo- uh, lodging in a longhouse in a village somewhere and then the dutch come looking for him and they find him they actually catch up to Harmon, and Harmon's taken by surprise inside of a longhouse and he he actually sets it on fire to create a distraction it's believed and he tries to run out the back way and Harmon manages to get away he gets away but then we know this now his second journey into Mohawk country was also in the winter, and he falls through the ice. We don't know if it's on a river or a pond or a lake. He falls through the ice. All right? And that's it. He dies. What a terrible ending to this story, right? But I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take out detail that that would be inconvenient for the story. I'm just gonna put it at the end here and give you lots of warning. He's gone. Not only is he gone, But the Iroquois, having lost some property themselves, their house being burned down, at least one longhouse, they receive compensation because Harmon's property is sold off. His family, I imagine, just now were living in poverty. And some of the proceeds from his property being sold off were sent to the Mohawk as compensation for the damage that he caused. So the Bogart family, because of the actions of their husband and father, Harmon, are near destitute i imagine we've opened the lid on the issue of slavery and we've seen how terrible it can be and uh, this nice little adventure that i set out to set you on is just i i i I meant to send you on bill and ted's excellent adventure and you ended up on bogus journey so i think i'm just gonna leave you here yeah i'm just gonna let you sit in this so this has been another episode of the other states of america history podcast i'm eric yannis thank you for listening